The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So Jesus spoke to a group that questioned his mission. And in his response to them, he, he came up with an analogy. He compared what he was doing to putting new wine into old wineskins. In Mark chapter 2, verses 21 to 22, Jesus says this, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, because if he does... Then the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now this makes logical sense, what he's saying, and the picture is clear enough. After a piece of clothing has been washed many times, it's shrunk to a point where it can't shrink any further. Used wineskins have been stretched as far as they possibly can go without bursting. Because the gases in fermentation cause expansion and that the skins need to be flexible to be able to do that. If one tries to mend a shrunken piece of cloth with a new patch, the patch will eventually shrink and tear away from the shrunken cloth. Because the shrunken cloth will have no give left in it. And similarly, the gases that are produced in the fermenting process of wine will will stretch out the old wineskins to a point where they burst and the wine itself is ruined and so is the wineskin. Now, the message that he's giving to this group is, is clear. There's something new that I'm doing. There's, there's something that is happening. And in context, they were concerned that why aren't you doing things like John the Baptist did it? Why aren't, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you fasting the way that John the Baptist and his disciples did? And, and, and he's going to make it clear, listen, now is not the time to, while the king is present, to undergo fasting. Now's the time for celebration, for rejoicing, because the king is here, Right? But also he's saying, listen, you, you also have this, this idea, this paradigm that's got you locked into a way of thinking about this is the way things should be done. And so he says, there's, there's something new that I'm doing that the inflexible will not be able to handle. I, I can't be confined by your ideas of what God's kingdom looks like. So, I'm blowing up your paradigms. And you're going to have to be flexible with that. (laughs) It it may not look like you thought it was going to look. It may not seem like you thought it was going to seem. And here's the truth. Sometimes the need for reform in the church is so great that the fresh work of God cannot be contained in old and expected forms. Sometimes what he's doing is, is, is so expansive, so much bigger than our concept, that in order for us to partner with him in what he's doing, we're going to have to drop some of our pre- presuppositions. I, I can remember many times throughout the course of my ministry experience where God has had to blow up my paradigm. 
As a matter of fact, I was about four or five years into ministry out in Cave Junction. I was church planting out there. It was an amazing time, but I was very, very young in the Lord and very young in my faith. My theology was still being developed, and I never went to seminary or any of those things. So some of the, the things that an education would provide for you, I was really learning on the fly. And about four or five years into ministry, I got a hold of a small little book. It's a little tiny one by John Piper called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. By the way, it's about like 98 pages, something like that. Real small book. If you ever want to read a fantastic book that you can consume in like an evening, it's, it's well worth it. I think that it costs you like six bucks on Amazon. Totally worth it. But I, I got a hold of this book and I started reading it. I picked it up at a bookstore, a Christian bookstore that was in Cave Junction. And um, I, I get towards the end, and, and he, he starts talking about the nature of the gospel. And, and he talks about this, thing, this idea that is labeled decisional salvation. That's the idea that, that the goal of preaching the gospel is to, to bring people to some sort of decisional moment, and then... And, Usually with a soft guitar playing in the background, the pastor brings the sermon to a conclusion. He says, everybody bow your heads. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today and you would like to respond to the gospel by asking Jesus into your heart, would you lift your hand and, and in the privacy of that room with all the saints not peeking or cheating, that person lifts their hand. They, he says, I see that hand. And then he leads them in a prayer. He says, Jesus, will you please come into my heart? Or something along those lines. And then Piper, in classic Piper fashion, said, you can't find that anywhere in the Bible. Now, you have to understand, at the time, that was my paradigm. Matter of fact, for the four years that I had been pastoring a church, I had been leading people to the Lord, or so I thought, with that methodology. And so I thought in my humble mind, oh, good book, John Piper, but obviously your theology is a little weak. Maybe I can help you out. So I opened up my Bible and I began to look, you know, and I was thinking about passages where Jesus knock, is knocking on the door of your heart, or so I thought, or, you know, where we're, we're told that Jesus lives in our hearts. Really only two verses that I could come up with that even came close and they were so far away it didn't provide an answer. <laughs> One of them said from Colossians, Let the, that Christ should dwell in your hearts, right? Be at home in your hearts. The other one was from Revelation. It had nothing to do with the heart. It was God knocking on the door of a rebellious church <laughs> and saying, hey, do you mind if I visit? <laughs> and here's what I realized. Four or five years into ministry, I don't even have the gospel right. Think about the accountability for that before the Lord. People in, in, in my church are, are hearing me proclaim what they 
understand to be the gospel of Jesus, which ends up with this sort of climactic crescendo of emotions and ask Jesus into your heart. And in the moment they feel stirred. And if, and if I'm just, you know, if I'm convincing enough, if I could just massage the sermon and the music the right way, I can motivate people to come and pray this prayer. And then they pray this prayer and they go right on with their sinful lives unchanged, unmoved by the Lord. Now, did God use it? Did people really get saved? Yeah, people really got saved. Believe it or not, God did amazing things through my stupidity. (laughs) Okay? But because I had not searched the scriptures and made it clear for myself, God had to blow up my paradigm. And he did it again in another three years. And he did it again in another four years. And he continues to be reforming me through the truth of his word. See, inflexibility, though it feels safe, sometimes can be our enemy. So, as we dive into the text today, I want you to feel that rigidity. I want you to understand what is happening. In the previous chapter, Peter was called by the Lord through a vision to go to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius, who was a centurion. And in going to the house, he begins to explain the story of Jesus. And at that moment, while he's still talking, the Holy Spirit falls upon Gentiles and they begin to speak in unknown languages. Languages that were not known by them previously. And Peter is like trying to take in what God is doing. In verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, we see the controversy that this stirred up, the controversy. If you're taking notes, that's the first key word, verses 1 through 3, controversy. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. They heard that Peter had gone there, that they had received the word of God, and that Peter had baptized them already. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, which I don't know what kind of a party that is, (laughs) but it sounds like a lame one. (laughs) The circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, this seems like a weird conversation for us. But in that day, it was quite normal. You see, as as is often the case, people are slow to embrace anything new. And the news of the gospel reaching the Gentiles is not immediately received with joy. Rather, it is is received with a, a measure of skepticism. And this is because the cultural and ethnic prejudice that was present in the the time of the apostles ran deep. The problem at its core was really a theological issue. 
You see, the people of Israel had come to believe that because God's covenant was with them as a national identity and with their ancestors, that they were the in-crowd accepted by God, and then everybody else outside of that was the out-crowd rejected by God. He had no plans for them other than their eventual submission. He did not care about them in the same way that he cared about his own people. And this affected their idea of what a messianic kingdom would look like. Their idea of the messianic kingdom only had enough space to hold the people who signed up for the covenant with Israel. To put it bluntly, in order to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. This meant the the practice of proselyte baptism, and it also meant circumcision for men the rite of circumcision. Now, in my mind, that seems like that's a hard sell for your evangelistic strategy. Hey, by the way, this is how you sign up to be a part of our church. You have this very delicate procedure. It's got to affect their numbers, I would imagine. Now, to top it off, The beliefs that were common to the everyday Jew in Jerusalem held that uncircumcised people, uh, held them in such disregard that to eat with them made you ceremonially unclean because they didn't have the same sanitary laws and the same ceremonial laws and they had been around unclean things and by nature of eating with them, you're sharing in their uncleanness. And in the Middle East to this day, the act of sharing a meal is really, really significant. And Peter, in going to Cornelius' house, had broken some cultural practices that left the people, the saints back in Jerusalem feeling very uneasy, like... Okay, are you you going off the rails here? This is a messianic kingdom, right? Messianic gospel. Uh, What what are you doing? And so they come to him and they say, Hey, hey, uh, Peter, I heard you went and you ate with uncircumcised people. Also, another awkward just observation. How do you know? I just, I mean, is there like an interview process? I don't know. But they hear the news, and it's obviously offensive to them. This is what I would like to call a bunker mentality. You see, when people feel threatened, that their way of life is threatened a lot of times fear causes them to sort of hunker down with them and their own. They they sort of bunker up. And the mentality shifts. Instead of being outward focused and, and missionaries that are sent into the world, what happens is people begin to sort of calcify to protect their traditions, their values, the things that they hold sacred, and and the inflexibility of that actually limits their ability to engage the world. When people feel fear like their fear, excuse me, when people feel like their way of life is threatened, they also feel that the best way to preserve it is sort of hide your kids, hide your wife, 
and then shoot anyone else who tries to get in. And Pastor Brent actually has a, a great way of saying this. He reminds us uh, probably about every three months or so we'll have a conversation where he brings this up. It's such a great, keen insight where he says that, you know, the, the church is not a bunker. It's a warship. It's a battleship. It's been sent into the world for God's mission. It has a purpose. It's not been sent out to hold up and self-protect, but it's been sent to save and to rescue. And these early Christians needed God to break them out of their bunker because they didn't have room for anybody else but those who were of the Jewish household or those who had signed up for the covenant of Israel. So, God sends Peter. Now, Peter is going to have to explain how he got there. How did he end up in that situation where he's eating with uncircumcised people in the first place? And so, Peter's strategy here is, is real simple. He wants to give them context. And his response is simply to tell the story of what had taken place and then to sort of say, this wasn't my plan. I, I didn't do this. God did this. I didn't even have a choice. I didn't know what was coming. I was just obeying the Lord step by step, and then next thing you know, everybody's speaking in tongues and full of the Holy Spirit. What am I supposed to do? So let, let's read it. And it reads pretty much exactly like that. Verse 4, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a, a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Peter's first point here is, I argued with God about it too. <laughs> like, I didn't do, I didn't want to do what he was telling me to do in the first place. I kept telling him, no, this is the wrong thing. I'm not supposed to do that. And he argued with me. At some point, we've got to establish who's Lord. Does he follow me or do I follow him? How does this work? And then, verse 11, Behold, at that very moment, three men arrive at the house in which we were uh, sent to me from Caesarea, excuse me, uh, and, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He says, I didn't go alone. I was suspicious of what was happening as well, but at the end of my vision, th these three guys show up, and they tell me that, that this guy wants to see me in Caesarea. So I grab another 
few guys with me, and, and we all headed out. I wanted the accountability. I wanted to understand what was happening. I wasn't sure what was taking place. But I knew that the Spirit had told me to go. Verse 13. And he told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Remember Acts chapter 2? Remember when that happened to the, the people in Israel? In Jerusalem? And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Second piece to this, he's like, I argued with God about it. He sent men to come and get me. I brought accountability because I wasn't sure. Went there. When I got there, they already said, an angel visited us and and told us that you have a message that's going to save us. And then I, I was like, well, the only message I know that saves is the one about Jesus. So I told them about that. And while I was telling them, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it fell on us. We didn't choose to be regenerated. We didn't choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We didn't choose to have that happen. That happened to us by the hand of God. And then God did it again. Not with our permission. He didn't seek our counsel. He did what he wanted to do. And then I remembered, oh, that's right, God said he was going to do that. (laughs) I remember when John the Baptist was around, he said, yeah, you know, John the Baptist is going to baptize you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I remember that God said that that was his plan. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. Now I love this. First comes the controversy, then comes the context in verses 4 through 17. And lastly comes the correction. As Peter concludes his time, he's like, hey, look, if God did this, what are we supposed to do? Fight with him? Argue with him? Resist him? This was God's work sovereignly in the household of a Gentile, uncircumcised, outside of the covenant family. All that I could do was yield to the hand of the Lord. Verse 18, And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Well, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is a significant moment, what is happening. Now, I I, I need to say this. They're still going to argue about it for another couple chapters. Okay? 
There's like swallowing down this new paradigm about how to understand God's kingdom and the way that the gospel works is still going to take some processing for them. They're still going to have to chew on it. They're going to argue about it. They're going to debate about what that means and how many laws should they have to follow and which ones. And, you know, they're going to they're going to really have to wrestle with a lot of downstream effects from this. But at this moment right now, in, in, in just seeing the story, they realize, yeah, this is God thing. We got to find a way to embrace what God has done. This is a significant moment in the history of the church. Listen, if this moment doesn't happen, the gospel never gets to you and me. Think about that. If the church at Jerusalem calcifies and bunkers up, if they just withdraw and say, hey, the world is scary and bad things are happening and, and sin can spread and, 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 and it's messy and we, we don't want to deal with it. If they just do that, what will happen is that the church will calcify and it will be only a Jewish movement and the nations will not be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, if I... If I could draw sort of a line from there to our present day, I would say this. That tendency for us to bunker up still exists. If you think about the number of denominations that are out there, right, within the kingdom of God, I think it's good to have identity I think it's good to have to make as clear as possible sort of the core tenets of of, of what you believe and where you're coming from doctrinally. That that's helpful. But a lot of the divisions that have happened within the body of Christ have happened because people bunker up. Instead of seeing the gifts of different churches and, and, and the ways that different bodies work. Bodies of believers work. We say, oh yeah, well we're not like those guys over there and we're not like those guys over there and we've got our flock and our thing and this is what we're locked into and, and those people shouldn't mix with our people and our people should not mix with those people. We're the same people. We belong to the same global church of God. We're on the same team. As a matter of fact, if there's anything that the church could use, it's us speaking into one another's lives, correcting doctrinal issues and, and arguing out things in Scripture that are, have been made central issues that are not central issues to the Scriptures. We need that dialogue. We need it not only within the church, but I see the same thing happening within the church towards the world. That, that houses of worship, and, and I'm thankful that we're not a part of a church like that, but we could slip into that really easily. This is just the way of Christian culture. The houses of worship where people are gathered in the name of Jesus, a lot of times just say, like, the world is icky, it's yucky, bad things are happening, so just, like, come here and huddle up with your family and attend lots and lots of services here and be a part of everything here, and I'm not really worried about you going anywhere else into the world. Just come and be safe. 
That's the opposite of what God has called us to as the church. We're not bunkers. We're battleships. We're not meant to sit in here and hunker down and have our nice little Christian life and our nice little Christian bubble. We're meant to be missionaries to Medford. Missionaries to the world around us. God has called us to know our neighbors, to love our coworkers, to be involved in their lives, to insert ourselves into the situation so that the seed of the gospel that has been planted in our hearts might begin to grow and flourish and, and find room in other places to begin to stretch out and continue to perpetuate the gospel going out. If we calcify, we will fossilize. God has called us out. In the same way that he did that for the church in Jerusalem, he continues to do that in us. There are people groups that we would say, oh, we don't associate with them. There are, there are places that we'd say we don't go. But I would just remind us, if we don't go, then who will? If there, aren't, if there aren't believers who love their neighbors enough to speak to them the gospel, how will they be saved? It can't happen. God's got one plan for the kingdom. Guess what? You're it. We're it. We're God's plan. There is no plan B. There is no backup program. There's the church. So Peter then explains to them everything that has happened, and, and at the end they go, yeah, this is, this is right. Another just piece of this that I think is really important is this. They don't get their theology figured out for a long time. I think sometimes one of the things that I hear from, from people in, in our church and other places is that like, I, I feel like I don't really know enough and I feel like I don't really, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really equipped to go out and, and, and really minister for the Lord or share the gospel or those kinds of things. Like, look, these guys had it wrong. They didn't even know that the gospel was for anybody other than them. <laughs> but God sent them out anyway. He said, we'll figure it out. We'll build the plane as we fly it. <laughs> right? It's okay that it's messy. It's okay that you, you fumble over your words. It's okay that sometimes you don't have answers. It's okay. You can figure out those answers. And I'll tell you, a powerful motivator for coming up with an answer is getting questions that you don't know how to answer. It's okay to have messy conversations and to mess it up. But do what God's called you to. Amen? All right. So the story here in the book of Acts begins to shift. And now we're going to read about a church called Antioch. Uh, Antioch was a city. It was nicknamed the Queen of the East. It had a population of about 500,000. It was the capital of Syria. It was cosmopolitan and commercial was a base for the Roman military. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and about 30 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea in what is now today modern-day Turkey. 
And it was at a crossroads with major highways for the Roman Empire that headed north, south, and then east. Antioch was a pluralistic society or a pluralistic city, uh, multicultural. It was filled with Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians. All of those people groups populated that city, making it remarkably diverse as a city. It was idolatrous. Some called Antioch the abode of the gods, since several Greek theories or uh, several Greek deities were worshipped there, including Zeus, Apollo, Poseidon, Adonis. And within five miles of Antioch was the city of Daphne, which was known for its worship of Artemis, um, and also Apollos and uh, Astarte. Uh, prostitution was present in uh, their, their religious practices. And, and in response to this, John Stott, the great theologian, said this, no more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. <laughs> Can you see why? It's full of so many diverse people from so many backgrounds that when the gospel takes root in that city, what's going to happen? You're going to reach every culture Every nation, you're going to reach Africa and Asia and Phoenicia. You're, you're going to see people going out from there with the gospel to all the known parts of the world. You can see God's wisdom and his strategy in this. And, it, and indeed it did. It became the launching pad for worldwide missions. It was the base of operations for Paul's missionary journeys with Barnabas in Acts 13 and 14. It was also the base of his journey with Silas in Acts 15 and 18, Antioch uh, became a church that changed the world. Now, it's interesting because it, it wasn't Jerusalem like you would think it would be Jerusalem. It was this Gentile church 300 miles north of Jerusalem that becomes the first global missionary sending church. It was Antioch that launched the global campaign to bring the gospel to the nations. Now, the question is, how did it become such an influential church? What, what made Antioch so dynamic? I've got about, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, just eight things here, but I'm going to go through them as quickly as I can with you. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. There you see that same mentality, right? It carries with them. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is, Greek-speaking Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. First of all, the first thing that I want you to see is one of the things that made the church dynamic at Antioch was cultural engagement. Cultural engagement. Verse 19. It says that there were some of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. The believers who tra traveled uh, up that far brought with them the gospel, but they also were from different 
ethnic backgrounds. They were from Cyprus and they were from Cyrene. Uh, interesting to note in Acts 13, you'll get a list of names and you'll find out that the pastoral staff or that the elders of that church were also multi-ethnic. There was uh, a guy named Simeon, uh, uh, the Niger, or Simeon who was black. He was from Nigeria. And so the multi-ethnic, multicultural church being born there in Antioch and the gospel is going out from that place. Naturally, because the church reflects the city that it's in. Now, uh, as they come to that place and they have different cultural backgrounds, they immediately integrate into a city that has multicultural background. And they're aware that like, the people here are not going to necessarily respond to an idea of a Jewish Messiah. So, they change the phrasing just a little bit. You catch it right at the very end. It says, and they came, all, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Notice there's no mention of Christ or Messiah, a Jewish phrase, but rather they shift the emphasis from messianic to lordship because lordship was something that culturally they could understand. The idea of a Lord coming uh, was something that was present in some of the mystic. Uh, religions of the Roman Empire and the idea of you know a savior also was a part of that and so they they are speaking the language of that group of people and this leads to the second the second piece not only was there cultural engagement but there was also gospel fluency the believers that had traveled north to Antioch from the persecution of Stephen likely had family or business ties in the region. And when they arrived, they began to share the message about Jesus. But the, the setting in Antioch is different than Jerusalem and Israel. So they, they still tell the gospel, but they tell the gospel in words and terms that the people there can understand. And this is what I would like to call gospel fluency. It's a phrase that has been used by a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt. I think it's a, a great way to say that. Being fluent in the gospel in every setting. And, and that's exactly what these guys do. They bring the message of the kingdom, but they bring it in words that they can understand. So they had cultural engagement, verse 19, verse 20, gospel fluency, verse 21, spiritual authority. But there were some of them, in verse 20, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So here you see that God's hand was on them supernaturally as well. Not only were they culturally engaging, and not only were they fluent in the gospel and able to translate the truth of what God had promised to the people, but also God was filling them with power by the Holy Spirit. He was making their work, their labor, not in vain. The hand of the Lord was with them. Not only that, but they had quality discipleship. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in, in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now Barnabas is a great candidate because Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. He was also, uh, he had the background to be able to deal with other cultures. And so it was a natural fit for that. 
So the church at Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He comes, he sees this church, it's growing. Now, I'm sure there's a little bit of discernment that's happening too. Jerusalem's like, hey, make sure things are healthy there. We don't, we're not sure what's happening up there. Barnabas gets there, he's like, the gospel's at work here. This is awesome. Now, this is around 47 AD. So we're talking 17 years after the gospel launches, right? And he finds this church is already up, it's already thriving, it's already got people that are talking about Jesus and growing in the Lord. And, 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 and Barnabas comes along and he, as, a, as the son of encouragement, begins to work towards discipleship. Barnabas was sent because of his roots in Cyprus. And they knew there that he would be accepted and received in that cosmopolitan city and that his knowledge of the culture would make him apt at being able to communicate well. So Barnabas gets to work. Because he sees the grace of God, he's glad, he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24 says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Man, I hope that that's a title that we can bear. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So as, as Barnabas is there and he's encouraging them and he's helping them to remain faithful in the Lord, the church continues to grow. So then when the church grows, Barnabas realizes like we need some qualified leadership here. So they had cultural engagement, gospel fluency, spiritual authority, and then they, they, they got excellent at quality discipleship. And that quality discipleship was really facilitated by Barnabas' humility. Because he realized, you know what? I can't do this all on my own. And he began to reach out. He was willing to reach out and to utilize someone whose gifting was different than his. So he goes to look for Paul. So, verse 25 Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember Saul who met Jesus on the road, who becomes Paul the apostle? He goes to find him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So in verse 19, you have cultural engagement. Verse 20, gospel fluency. Verse 21, spiritual authority. Verses 22 to 24, quality discipleship. Verses 25 to 26, humble leadership that says, it's not about making me a rock star. It's about equipping the saints, right? And he goes to get Paul. But then also you notice that out of that, out of everything that God is building into the church at Antioch, you see an influential identity in verse 26. They're given the name Christian. They didn't ask for that name. The culture around them calls them that. They realize, like, okay, you don't really fit with like the Hellenist, you know, Gentile crowd. You don't fit with the, like the Jewish crowd. You're not really that because nobody's having circumcision parties. So what are you? The only thing we really recognize about you is your obsession with Christ. 
They had to create a new cultural category for these people. They had an influential identity. They were known as followers of Christ. Two final things, verse 28. They had spiritual vibrancy. In verse 27, it says, Now in these days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this early church, 300 miles away from Jerusalem, has a prophet who visits from Jerusalem. When he gets there, in a moment, by the Holy Spirit, he says, hey, there's famine coming. And we need to recognize this. Probably thinking through the Old Testament scriptures and the ways that God had warned his people beforehand, they said, hey, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. We need to prepare. And they began to gather supplies in response. They were spiritually vibrant. They were tuned in, listening to the Lord. Their hearts were open to the work of God and what he would do in that moment. And lastly, they were outwardly focused. In verses 29 and 30, we we see that they, each one, according to their own ability, gave and they sent relief to the brothers living in Judea. They hear there's a famine coming and they store stuff up. Why? So they can put it in their bunker and shoot anybody who comes to get it? Nope. So they could send it to their brothers in Jerusalem and Judea. Listen, this church was dynamic because it was culturally engaged fluent in the gospel. They had spiritual authority. They were focused on quality discipleship. They had humble leadership. They had an influential identity. They had spiritual vibrancy. And they were not a church unto themselves, but they were outward focused. Listen, God is going to continue to advance his mission through the world. The question is, do we want to be a part of it? That's the big question for you and me. Are are we rigid? Can we not love beyond a certain border? Is there some line we say, you know, that group of people or, or that sinful problem or that place? I won't go there. I can't go there. That's not my calling. That, that's my favorite phrase. That really is a cover oftentimes. It's an excuse to not grow in some area. Our calling is to the world. Amen? Wow. God is going to advance his mission through the changes he creates in the church in Antioch. And he's going to do that through the change that he creates in us as a people. I just want to be healthy. Amen? I want to be fluent in the gospel. I want to be outwardly focused. I want to have spiritual vibrancy where we as a body of believers believers are tuned in, listening to the Lord. We're seeking him. That's why I love what is happening in the Thursday night prayer nights. I I love what is happening as as I see Jason leading guys and women beginning to lead studies. I, I love seeing that our church is coming alive in the Lord and saying, I will do what God has called me to do. 
As the gospel does what it's supposed to, it changes people and causes them to engage a world that needs saving. Listen, a healthy church doesn't exist for itself. It exists to engage the world around us with the good news that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for the exhortation from your word. Thank you for the reminder, God, that we cannot become a group of people or even individuals who live unto ourselves. We've been called to be missionaries. And God, as we look for those opportunities around us, send us full of the Holy Spirit. Cause us to be tuned in to your voice. Make us fluent in the gospel. Equip us with your word and bring about fruitfulness. Save, Lord, through our lives. Cause us to lead others to you. We ask this in the name of for the glory of Jesus. Amen.